years that I've spent training people to use new systems and new applications and new tools, it's like all of that goes away if you you know move beyond the the user interface that we've all become accustomed to over the last 30 plus years and and just give people a way to speak type text whatever in whatever medium they choose and everything else gets cared for behind the scenes so the vision is you know it's ambitious it's big but when you start to see breakthroughs like chat gpt and and you see the um, level of engagement and adoption happen virtually overnight it gives you hope that you know this this thing that we're all working toward is is achievable it's real it's more about how do we manage the transition in my mind right yeah um, it's not about it's not about managing the disruption you can't control that it's about managing the transition around it so you know i, I like this idea of organizations having a longer term view of of what our workforce will look like three four years five years from now and actually being thoughtful about how do you get there i'm going to create a hypothesis and i'm going to test that hypothesis and if you test the hypothesis and it turns out to not be true. A good scientist or researcher doesn't just quit there. They go, well, maybe my hypothesis was wrong or maybe I tested it the wrong way. But you don't, the journey doesn't end there. You, you change your hypothesis and you test again. Welcome back to Invisible Machines. I am your host, Josh Tyson, co-author of Age of Invisible Machines. Today, Rob and I are going to talk with one of our friends in the enterprise AI space, Greg Vert who is a principal at Deloitte and has led many digital transformation initiatives uh, in human resources specifically. We cover a lot of ground in this episode. Greg has spent many years working with enterprise clients on uh, digital transformations, and we talk a lot about the things businesses and business leaders need to be doing now uh, in order to kind of prepare for uncertain and easily disrupted future. We also spend a fair amount of time discussing the ways that AI might change the experience of individual workers inside of these large organizations. Uh, there's really something for everyone in this episode, so I'm gonna stop talking and we'll get to this conversation now. All right, well, welcome Greg. It's great to see you. Thank Rob, you. a pleasure as always. Hey. Um, yeah, so, so OneReach.ai and Deloitte have collaborated on HR-related projects in the past. And so, Greg, you're, you're familiar with the, the OneReach platform and, and uh, the ideas of hyper-automation that we talk about in Age of Invisible Machines. So I'll just go right ahead and jump in with kind of the, the question du jour. Uh, how, how are you seeing ChatGPT alter the conversations you're having about conversational AI and also... Um, you know, in, in the HR space. Yeah. Um, well, first of all, kudos to the OpenAI team and and putting something out to the to the mass public that makes AI feel real. Um, I think we haven't seen a moment like this that's gotten as much uh, public attention since maybe IBM Watson competed on Jeopardy, right? Um, and and it's a great way to showcase the. Um, leaps and bounds and evolutions that we've seen in, especially in the generative space uh, in, in terms of what's possible. And so I think it's opened up a lot of conversations with our clients, our HR clients around how could I use this within my organization uh, to make you know, the workforce experience better, easier, to make people more productive, um, less distracted um, by making some of the things that they have to deal with every day, writing emails, uh, you know, creating content uh, a little bit easier. 
Um, so it's, it's opened up a lot of uh, interesting conversations. The funny thing to me about it is, um, you know, the underlying technology has been around for a little while and I know one reach AI has been using it and, and, and a number of other, uh, others, Microsoft. Um, and so, you know, in, in our consumer lives, we probably were unaware that this was starting to be incorporated into different experiences that we were having interactions we were having. Um, it wasn't until they opened up this simple app and gave people the ability to go in and play with it and, and, and play with it for free that, uh, that I think the conversation really got started. And I, I was just reading an article yesterday that um, uh, ChatGPT has reached 100 million unique users already since it launched uh, at the end of last year, which makes it the fastest uh, uh, you know, to reach that number of any internet app. So it beat TikTok, it beat Instagram, um, which I think is just remarkable. It shows that people are really interested in this topic. They want to engage with it. Um, and now, you know, for us, the next step is to say, well, okay, well, how do we take this and use yeah. it in, in more meaningful ways and ways that actually make the world a better place? So does it mean that the they want to talk to machines? People want to talk to machines? More than they want to talk to each other? Is that what just happened? <laughs> <laughs> maybe, maybe. We'll, we may look back on this as a watershed moment in, in human and machine collaboration. We will see. And finally, something that agrees with everything I say. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we just needed the breakthrough, right? It's, it's, it's all about the breakthrough. Yeah. Yeah, and it makes me look smarter <laughs> when I'm writing emails. <laughs> I, I think I saw that Please chat GPT is releasing. My email. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Uh, is it? I think ChatGPT has also now announced that they're releasing like a, a, a subscription version that's got a few more capabilities, that, and that there always will be this free version. But that now, now I yeah. think it's being rolled out as like a legitimate productivity tool. Yeah, yeah. yeah uh, I saw that they were going to integrate it with Teams, uh, or may have already done that. Uh, that yeah. Which, yeah, which will be which will be interesting to see how people how quickly people adopt that. It can automatically capture notes from a meeting that takes place in teams, which is interesting. Um, you know, we'll see how, how much people are comfortable relying on that versus, you know, giving up the control of, of, you know, capturing notes on their own. But you mentioned something, Josh, I thought was really interesting. I was talking to somebody a couple of weeks ago and he said that he is put, he puts every single email he writes now through chat GPT to see if it can make it you know, more effective and more direct. Um, and I, I haven't been doing that, but I think it's a really interesting practical use case that a lot of people can relate to. Yeah. Yeah. And, and uh, yeah, I, Rob and I have talked a lot about, oh yeah, go ahead, Rob. Uh, yeah, I was probably just hitting on the same thing <laughs> you were about to. <laughs> uh, well, yeah, what I was going to talk about is, <laughs> we do, you, you've mentioned the idea that, you know, right now you, you might, you know, soon we'll see ChatGPT like we're seeing at Teams. You might see it as an add-on in Word or in your email client, but that ultimately, like the real next phase is we don't need an email client. We don't need Word. We just have a chat interface that can take what we're saying and put it in the right place and use it in the right way. Yeah, yeah. We have this, you know, kind of internal demo that we used to kind of unlock this idea, which is, you know, let Comcast know that my internet's down. Hmm. You know, do I need to know how? Like email, SMS, smoke signals. Like, do I really care? I just care that they know and that they respond back to me. Right. So I think that, you know, our kids will be like, what's email? Yeah. <laughs> like, and, I hope so. And why did <laughs> I ever, why did you care about it? <laughs> like, yeah. Why did you need to know how? 
you know, what protocol you were going to use to communicate with somebody. Like, um, seems, seems, seems like a lot of extra cognitive load, uh, on communication. You know, what app did you respond to me in? Like, why does this exist? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Why do we need to care about this? Uh, yeah. Yeah. No, it's a, it's one of the reasons why I, w I was so interested in OneReach AI a couple of years ago when we first started collaborating. Um, it was this vision that the most frictionless user experience we can create is through natural language. Uh -huh. And that like hit me like a ton of bricks. And I'm like, well, yeah, obviously, right? Like uh, the years that I've spent training people to use new systems and new applications and new tools, it's like all of that goes away if you you know move beyond the, the user interface that we've all become accustomed to over the last 30 plus years and, and just give people a way to speak, type, text, whatever, in whatever medium they choose and everything else gets cared for behind the scenes. So the vision is, you know, it's ambitious, it's big, but when you start to see breakthroughs like chat GPT and, and you see the um, level of engagement and adoption happen virtually overnight, it gives you hope that, you know, this, this thing that we're all working toward is, is achievable. It's real. And when we're making big strides, you know, yeah, it's exciting. Yeah. It's also scary. I think, you know, there's a lot of disruption coming and I think we've talked about that in the book quite a bit. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think most people see it as hyperbole to be honest. <laughs> um, uh, but, uh, I wonder like now that clearly chat GPT has scared the pants off of Google, right? Like they're bringing back their founders. They're like, oh crap, we're not, we're not risk takers enough, right? Yeah. And, and they, we, we got to bring back the risk takers, the people who will, will, will you know, take chances uh, and innovate. It, it just, when do you think the kind of, the, the cascade effect will happen where people realize, wait a sec, a, a year ago, we would have thought Google search had no chance of being disrupted, like 10 years away, like impossible, right? And now everyone's going, oh my God, Google's bringing back their founders. Um, how soon do they think, oh, maybe we're next? You know, if it can happen to Google, <laughs> it can happen to anyone. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, yeah, no, it's interesting, right? It kind of puts them on defense for the first time in a, in a while, right? Mm -hmm. um, and they've got to worry about protecting what they built. Um, I. I'm going to actually bring it down to an individual level, right? Because you started that, Rob, talking about you know people uh, thinking of it as hyperbole, right? This disruption and, and yeah. this risk that we see on the horizon, um, and I see this all the time with organizations that we work with, right? Where you know when you go in and start to talk about automation, you know some people will go, oh well, I'm not worried about that. That doesn't affect me. I do X, Y, Z. You can't automate this, right? Um, and then you know, the technology evolves and it's, it starts to get closer and closer to what it is you do. And now all of a sudden, you know, that fear starts to set in and it's like, well, okay, wait a second, but, but the technology can't do it as well as me, or it can't do it as, as, uh, with as much institutional knowledge or sophistication, or it can't bring as much experience as I have to the table. Like people rationalize this in different ways. It's probably a really interesting psychological study. Um, and then, and then it's too late, right? It's like, you know, the, all that time that you spent sort of justifying why you were better at position to do whatever it is the machines are now uh, capable of doing, you know, you could have been looking instead to say, 
you know, how do I fit into the new world, right? Like, you know, machines aren't going to take over everything, right? We're not, we're not talking about a dystopian future here. Right. We're talking about a, a world where machines can do all the stuff that we probably would rather not be doing <laughs> if we had our, our way about it. And we can focus on things that are, you know, actually interesting and important and impactful and make the world a better place. And it's kind of that, that bigger picture view. So when you, when you take that and you look at it for you know, Google's position and what's happening kind of at the industry level, it's sort of the same thing. It's like, um, all right, so this big innovation happened over here you know, how do we make sure, you know, we could spend all the time that we want sort of justifying why what we have still makes sense in this world, or you can figure out how do I work in the world where this massive disruption just happened and, and, you know, we still offer something or we can offer something new that maybe doesn't exist yet that complements it. And it brings us into, you know, a whole new, whole new level. So, yeah, let me hit you with kind of a, cause I think you're right. It's, you know, Getting down to the individual, that's really where it's at. Um, I mean, that's, you know, that's what we're all talking about. It's collective thinking. So let's think of it as an individual uh, experience with it. Um, and that's going to bubble up to an overall voice. Um, you know, I think, I think it's clear that industrial revolution, et cetera, um, has caused many of us to kind of value or identify ourselves uh, alongside our productivity so we measure mm. our productivity yep. as human beings and uh until our deathbed apparently and, and we, <laughs> then we just thought it didn't matter and it was our relationship yep. but it's too late um yep. and uh uh i i think that you know that this this makes you know especially for for certain generations of folks cause a seismic shift in how they identify themselves within work, how they value themselves, how, how they define themselves, how, how do orcs, you know, or good orcs deal with this? How do they think about yeah. the, the psychological effect of those folks who are like, wait, you know, I could pump out, you know, whatever, a thousand words a minute. I don't know what's good. What's good. <laughs> is that good, Josh? I don't what's know good? either anymore. Yeah. What's good? That's pretty good. Glass, right? <laughs> it's a Mavis Beacon. Yeah. <laughs> That's pretty good. So, so yeah, you know, and now who am I if if a machine pumping out ten times that? Um, who am I, and and how do I, you know, reevaluate and and kind of create a new dashboard for 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 who I am and, and how I'm valued. Yeah, and and you, we didn't even talk about the fact that G, chat GPT can write in code. Right, right? So right. all the people that were on the other side of the fence thinking, I'm safe because I'm, right. I'm building these things. <laughs> now, you know, now, now it's like, okay, what? Um, yeah, thousand lines but, of code. Oh, <laughs> yeah, didn't see yeah. that coming. <laughs> nope, nope. Um, but the, I mean, that's the, it goes back to what we were talking about, right? Like no one is really safe from disruption, right? Like we should all be, aware of it and, and, and tracking it and sort of figuring out what shifts do we need to make. And I think, I don't know if there's a lot of organizations out there that are thinking that far ahead. Right. And, and there's one other issue that I would say, you know, you kind of talked about productivity and, and breaking that mold, but we also have this problem with short-term incentives and short-term uh -huh. um, tracking where, you know, it's like, everybody's so worried about hitting, you know, the next quarter or the, you know, showing, having a good fiscal year. And, and, and we get stuck in the cycle because we're not looking that far ahead. 
Um, and I, I think that's where organizations need to shift, right? They need to really be thinking three years from now, you know, especially with the uh, radical innovations in the technology space like ChatGPT that are going to come in and, and significantly change the composition of my workforce, right? And I'm going to have a lot more human and machine collaboration. Traditional jobs are going to go away or get disrupted. New jobs will emerge. I mean, you think about things like AI ethics officers and um, you know uh, people that are monitoring machines at a level to to ensure that we're not creating unintended consequences. You know, there's a whole new category of jobs that'll come out of this, right? Just right. like any other massive revolution. So it's, it's more about how do we manage the transition in my mind, right? Yeah. Um, it's not about, it's not about managing the disruption. You can't control that. It's about managing the transition around it. So, you know, I, I like this idea of organizations having a longer term view of, of what our workforce will look like three, four years, five years from now, and actually being thoughtful about how do you get there, right? right. Not just, you know, dealing with, because the conversations we're having right now uh, are all short-term reactions to economic cycles. It's how do I take out cost? How do I improve workforce productivity? Um, and you know, these bigger, longer-term questions are getting ignored uh, from from my experience. So. Yeah, yeah. I was, uh, Unilever, like a huge company, hundred and seventy thousand employees, thinking about you know by twenty twenty-five. Uh, having every employee have a, a, a an IDW, intelligent digital worker that mm-hmm. helps them get their work done. Um, you know, it, it, it's not, uh, from what I understand, it's not, it's not being thought about at the highest levels though. It's, these are just, you know, champions of change within the org that, right. that have this idea, right? And they're, they're trying to sell it. And like, I, I think I've heard this a lot where, Right now, for a lot of organizations, the talent seems to be like high-level management just not being wired to to buy into this. Again, like Google, right? Like, no. like just in the in the wealth preservation mode. You know, how do I, you know, how do I reduce risk? How do I secure this asset and take very little risk? Um, yeah. So, so, so now you have like this blocking happening at the highest level, or maybe it's not blocking. Maybe it's just the absence of enthusiasm um, and the willingness to or understanding. To, right. I mean, it right. Could, could could start there more fun more fundamentally. They don't understand what's happening. Yeah. Um, yeah. How, well, how it's do they tricky too that? because oh, well, I was, like as we talk about in the book, I mean, I think what makes it extra challenging is that the first step is almost literally falling on your face. Like you have to, you have yeah. to try something and right. fail at it. If if yeah. you're smart, you're doing it internally, and you're working, you know, with employees to try and refine conversational experiences before you roll them out to your customer base. But I mean, the the first step is to to blow it. But you know, to right. win, you you blow it, then yeah, you quickly recover. Yeah, it's kind of like running into it. On mistakes. Yeah, it's like running into a locked door. You know, you got to just put your weight <laughs> into it. And- Either you're going to go through or you're going to bounce off. <laughs> yeah. The only way, one way to find out, yeah. right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, no, it's it's interesting. Um, you know, I, I think about that an analogy and it's, um, and I think it's actually starting to happen, that shift where over the last two or three years, I probably have had 200 conversations with different clients, different HR leaders about the potential of conversational AI. Um, and I'll call that the curiosity phase, right? Okay. Everybody wanted to know about it. It was high profile enough that you couldn't ignore it. 
but it hadn't quite broken through to that. Um, okay, we need to do something, right? The call to action, uh, or the maybe the call to investment, right? But I think we're starting to move into this this next phase of experimentation, which is the running into the locked door okay. moment, right? Where start to um, keep your composure as a serious executive after you're like, yeah, <laughs> don't blame right. to get up off the ground. <laughs> yeah, well, and you know the funny thing to me is that we're seeing higher rates of adoption on the customer facing side for businesses. Yeah, no, no. And I'm like, why wouldn't you run into the locked door with your I totally workforce agree. first yeah. and then take practice, it out to your customers? Yeah. Practice yeah. on the folks that are, you know, open to it that, you know, right. I, I totally agree. It's like, yeah, it's like, it's like doing our clinical trials on our babies, you know, like, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's a great, that's a good one. <laughs> yeah. It's exactly like doing clinical trials on our babies. And it's like, you know, take advantage of, of the experimentation you have with a, with your workforce, because a, you're going to get better feedback, richer feedback, right? Like as consumers, how often do we get that survey at the end of a, of an interaction and just ignore it, right? We've been surveyed over-surveyed. But I can tell you as an employee, if I have a negative experience, uh, someone's going to hear about it, right? Like I'm going to take the, yeah. the extra two minutes to fill out the survey. Um, so I think you're going to get better feedback and it'll help you to get through that locked door faster. And by the time you go out to your customers, you've got a, a, a better capability around what you know what this is, how to, how to use it in the right ways, how to put the right guardrails up, the right monitoring and governance in place. Um, and, you know, obviously we don't want to impact our customers in any negative way that gets to the heart of the business. We also don't want to ne- impact our workforce in any negative way, but, you know, there's ways I think to kind of experiment internally without creating, you know, controlling the blast radius or creating too much disruption. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's, it's a big difference between a customer choosing not to buy from you and an employee quitting over an experience. Like they're less likely to quit over it. Yeah. Um, yeah. And more likely that they'll, having used it, now be able to imagine ways they can do their jobs better. So right. I think people see it as a, a throwaway, not not understanding there's a ton of value that can be captured in in doing it in that way. You know, you're. You know, you're going to see, you know, the effects of it on top line and bottom line doing it internally. It's not just a, you know, throwaway experiment. Right. It's not for, it's not experimenting for experimenting right. sake. It's, right. you, you know, you can create value along the way as well. And it, it's, it's interesting to me. One other kind of thing that jumped to my mind is, you know, because we're rolling it out more on the customer facing side and we're experiencing conversational AI more in our consumer lives right now, um, it's actually creating an expectation that most organizations maybe don't see coming, which is if it's easier for me to do something transactional in my personal life, because I have an assistant, um, I'm now going to start to want that, or maybe even expect that in the workplace as well. Right? Like if I need to process an expense or take some time off or, you know, all these like kind of mundane transactional things that are important to running a business, but nobody wants to have to deal with or carve time out to do, um, you know, they're going to want that assistant. And I think most organizations, we, we saw this shift with self-service, right? Where people realized that they could get their banking done online, right? It's the classic example. And then they started to demand it, you know, from their employers yeah, as yeah. well, which is like, why do I have to wait until you're available and get through a 1-800 call center or even physically go to a, uh, uh, sit with an HR person in order to initiate a leave of absence, right? Or, you know, whatever else it is that you need to deal with as a, as a, as a worker. 
And so then the shift came in and it was like, well, I want the ability, I want the technology, I want the empowerment to do that on my own. Um, and most organizations haven't even caught up with that trend, right? At least not in a good way, right? They may have offered something, but it's not a good experience. So now this new thing is coming along and this idea that, um, you know, we, we have assistance in our personal lives that we can use for all sorts of things. Um, and, and now I want that in the workplace too, to make my, my work easier, my life easier uh-huh. at work. Um, and, and I think organizations are going to be unprepared for how quickly that shift is going to come, especially on the heels of chat GPT, just to bring it around to the start of our conversation. Like, cause now everybody knows, Yeah. everybody knows the technology is there. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, a lot of folks out there in the conversational AI space have decided to kind of focus on customer service, you know, and I think it's just yeah. that that's where all the money is. Yeah, you know, it's a bigger business case for yeah, sure. Yeah, so they're like, well, that's how we'll make more money. Um, and then they're integrating with these sort of antiquated old customer service tools, you know, IVRs that, you know, designed yeah. it in 1970 that hasn't changed much. And um, yeah, CRMs that replaced SAP that are really the new SAP, <laughs> you know, to be replaced. Um, and uh, yeah, I find it, um yeah a, a kind of a challenging conversation to have to say you know like how, how can how can you shift that thinking to say start internally what's the you know this, this yeah i think the, the, the hardest yeah i honestly the hardest hardest challenge is you're dealing with two completely separate distinct parts of an organization so, um, and, I, and I think because the business case is so much more attractive on the customer side, it's easier to make the initial sell that, hey, this is a direction of travel that you're going to want to invest in. The business case and the return is there on the internal side, um, but it's, it's, it's harder to get to the top of the priority list, right? Okay. Especially if you're an HR leader or an IT leader, the amount of things that you have to deal with now, like just several, just like everyone else, it's overwhelming, right? Like, you know, if you go back even 10, 15 years ago, your strategy probably could be summed up in three to five bullet points. Now it's like, I've got 25, 30 different things I've got to juggle. And so how do you prioritize this in the, in the, context of everything else. Right. I see that as a big challenge and we don't see a lot of really good partnership across, right? So, you know, if you're an HR leader or an IT leader and you, um, you know, might be interested in conversational AI, one of the first things we recommend is go talk to whoever runs your customer facing operation and see what they're doing. Right. Yeah, Cause if you're probably not the first leader to, to start this journey within your own four walls. Uh-huh. And there's, I bet there's a lot of lessons to be learned and possibly, you know, a lot of things that you can just extend, right? Like you don't have to start from scratch, right. take what's already been built, built elsewhere and, and reapply it in a different situation, a different scenario. Um, so that's, we're trying to kind of break down those silos a little bit with our, with our clients and try to help them think, think across a bit more. And that's one of the concepts we've come up with recently is this idea of a digital workplace, right? Where it's, you know, you're not building an, an HR assistant or an IT assistant, um, or a finance assistant, you're building a work worker assistant. And it kind of goes back to what you mentioned earlier, Rob, this idea that, for I think you said Unilever yeah. that in the future there every employee every worker is going to have their own intelligent digital assistant. Um, we're kind of pushing the same thing, and we wrote a an, an article kind of 
intended to be thought provoking around this idea of a digital doppelganger where yeah. not only do you have that digital assistant, but you are responsible for training them. You are responsible for what they do. You're uh, responsible uh, for the outcomes. You you have a responsibility and oversight over that doppelganger, but it's an extension of you. And it's one that you can deploy to go deal with stuff you don't want to deal with, stuff you don't have time to deal with, you know, whatever the case may be. But it kind of, it it operates in your likeness, which I think is a way to bridge a bit of the gap that we have now between, you know, how humans perceive machines, intelligent machines. Yeah, and it's fascinating when you start like, Thinking of the digital twin side, you know, I, again, sounds very futuristic to people, but it, it really is a practical thing. And yep. uh, we spend a lot of time around, you know, not only just, you know, employee doppelgangers, but uh, the company digital twin. Um, right. You know, the joke is like they need somewhere to work. <laughs> <You know? laughs> um, and so having all your tickets and customers and uh, systems and employees and assets in a digital twin that you know looks a lot like a graph um yep. and then and then having those digital twins sort of work you know with an awareness and a context of what's happening in the company and of course then it gets you know absolutely you know really crazy when you think about these things talking to each other mm-hmm. um it gets <laughs> Yeah, let's, let's not lose the audience. Yeah, <laughs> let's not lose the audience. Yeah, um, exactly. we'll get there. We'll get there eventually. Yeah. yeah, we've got a few few cycles to get through first. But yeah, I like the d- digital twin environment too, and just the idea of simulated environments in general, right? Because it it goes back to this experimentation and running into the locked door. If you can do that in a simulated environment and learn before you do it in a real environment and kind of mitigate the fallout of, you know, any of the lessons learned or consequences that you may face, like that seems to be the smarter, better approach, but I don't see a lot of organizations doing that outside of, you know, really big, you know, technical engineering type of projects or I, you know, IT type of projects. Right. Uh, but you could take the same concept and apply it to, you know, pretty much everything we deal with in the business world. Yeah. Yeah. hundred percent. Well, it feels like there might be a, a missed opportunity as well. Greg, you, you were mentioning that you know, companies need to really be thinking long term about productivity models and what what kind of roles will exist in the next three to five years. Yep. And if you're if you're working on solutions internally with your workforce, they're involved in designing those solutions. They're mm-hmm. like having firsthand experience with AI that not only helps you know make their jobs better, but it also starts conditioning them for a new kind of role that they might have um, in their company, yeah. which is probably like managing bots or or doing something involved with AI. So I mean, the the best way to yeah, I mean, it involves getting intimate with technology and conversational AI has, has shown us through ChatGPT, shown everyone yeah. that it, it can actually be an ideal interface for getting a lot more out of technology for everyone. Yeah, I think this idea that people will, you know, yeah, that that they'll have the job fixing the machines, you know, that, that's mm. kind of always silly to me. It was the invention of the home cappuccino machine, you know, didn't create an army full of cappuccino repairmen <laughs> machine repairmen it but it did explode baristas. it's funny to visualize <laughs> <laughs> but yeah. it did explode the profession of baristas like you know baristas before the before then were just called wait waiters and waitresses um and uh now now they're baristas so it's right super interesting we're really good at inventing new jobs aren't we i mean oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> i'm not i'm not worried about that i think that's a great example though of where you know, we built a technology, a machine that actually automates uh, part of the work, part of the process, 
probably maybe arguably does a better job, right? You're you're not going to have as many inconsistencies, and it's always it's always going to be a good output or good product. Um, but then we we sort of took that and said, okay, well, if we don't have to do this type of work anymore. What's the added value we can wrap around what the machine does to create an experience, right? And so, you know, I think the cappuccino machine and baristas and the rise of, you know, chain coffee shops are probably all linked together somewhere. And and now you can't imagine going and getting coffee without interacting with a highly trained, highly educated barista that, mm-hmm. you know, knows how to work the machines, sure. But that's not really... The, what you think of as their job like that's that's a means to an end what you're really getting is an experience right yeah and it's a manual of machine they're usually by choice (laughs) yeah (laughs) yeah it's better that way right yeah yeah yeah, i i think it's a kind of fascinating side to 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 this whole thing of you know what job will we invent in the future will there be a waiter for each table instead of waiters having Second, right? Will it be one waiter per table? Um, it kind of brings me to like a, a, another question, which is around, you know, it, it to suggest, um, you know, that that we won't invent new jobs is almost to say that we're kind of reached the the max uh, limit of customer experience and employee experience, right? It's to, it's to say there isn't much more to be done there. Um, it feels like there's a lot more. There's a, we can get a lot better at those areas and that, yeah. and, and isn't that where it's going to go or what are your thoughts on that? No. I, so absolutely. First of all, I think there's a huge gap between customer experience and employee experience right now, right? <laughs> like if you, if you in consume in our consumer world, right. And you want to go buy something online, that experience is pretty good. It's way better than what we had 10 years ago. Could it be better than what we have today? Sure. But you compare and contrast that with the typical employee experience. There's all kinds of research out there about the number of different communication channels. We talked about it a little bit earlier. Um, the number of different applications that you have to toggle through uh, in order to just get your job done. Uh, the number of different places you have to go to find information. Um, it, you know, I think the workforce as as a macro term right now is more overwhelmed, more distracted, dealing with more cognitive load than ever before. Whereas I feel like on the customer side of things, we're at least trending in the right direction. I don't think we've made the shift um, from an employee experience perspective yet. I think things have actually gotten worse and maybe, you know, they have to get worse before they get better going back to the uh, falling on the face moment. Right. right? Um, But coming on the heels of uh, the pandemic and, you know, outside of our frontline workers, most of us um, working from home and, and doing all of our work through a computer, laptop, mobile device I think there's this epiphany that we all had coming out of it. Like this could be so much easier. This could be so much better. And, and it kind of goes back to some of the shifts we've talked about. Like, I think the expectation is rising that um, organizations address this issue. And a lot of them don't know where to, where to begin or where to start or, or, or they don't understand how conversational AI as an example could play a role in that. So that's this whole like digital workplace concept again. And, and there was actually a really good uh, interview I was in the New York Times on Sunday about this digital workplace concept. I think it's kind of become mainstream, um, but the article kind of had a bit of a negative view on it. It's like, it's like, yeah, we're talking about it, but things aren't getting better. It was kind of my words summary of it. Uh-huh. Um, but there was a really interesting point in there uh, from the, the interview subject, and we could probably find find who it was. I don't remember off the top of my head. 
um, a really well accomplished researcher in the space. He basically said the problem right now is the gap between what we know we need, what we know would be better, and our ability to actually use the technology that's available to us to create it. Right? It's it's not that the gap between what we want and what technology can do. It's the gap between what we want and our ability to use technology to get there. Um, so it's really all on us. It's a human problem right now. It's not a technology problem, which I think is really fascinating when you think about all this, because most people surface level will look at it and go, AI is not ready, or they'll go, I can't trust it. And it's actually not the problem. The problem is how we architect, design, deploy it um, in a way that actually gets us where we want to be. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's our our ability to to think about it and our, the lack of experience we have with it. And I think it kind of comes down to the technology is there, but the examples aren't there yet. I yep. think once we start seeing those examples, once some leaders step up here and, you know, Bruce and, <laughs> and, and all, you know, they're going to look some pretty good. Tape on their nose. Yeah, yep. a little makeup and they're going to look pretty good out there because they really kind of <laughs> carved a, a kind of a vision for everybody else yeah. to follow. I, I think that, you know, it's always would describe this, you know, you know, bunch of, uh, you know, entity standing on the edge of, you know, bird standing on the edge of the cliff, which one's going to fly first, you know? Yeah. 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 No, that's Greg. Do you, uh, do you see this as like a, a leadership driven moment here? Um, I, mean, I think how do you so. see, yeah. Like CH, uh, ROs, um, how, how are their roles going to change? Do you think so, in response to all this stuff? Yeah, I, I do think it's a leadership um, opportunity. I'll say, I'll say that, right. Because we talked about the curiosity phase. We're kind of through that. We're into this experimentation phase and we're starting to see some breakthroughs, right? Like, um, I think one really interesting breakthrough is in the, um, talent acquisition space. And I think people are starting to realize that conversational AI is a great medium to attract candidates, right? People that don't work for you yet, but that you want to work for you. Being able to give them an assistant that they can interface with whenever they need to through whatever channel they they want, like that's a breakthrough moment and clients are starting to pay attention to it. We need more breakthrough moments to get us in fully out of the experiment phase and into the, you know, what I would call kind of like the adoption phase, right? Um, But it is a leadership thing. And I think CHROs, you know, we kind of talked about being an executive now is probably harder than it's ever been just with the number of things you have to deal with the overwhelmingness of it, the pressures, competing priorities. Um, But for the CHRO, when I think about AI, it's really kind of a dual mission. Mission number one is you have an opportunity to be a role model by figuring out how to close that gap of where do I apply this to create value? Um, so that your peers can look over and be like, well, we need what they have in HR, right? Like that's, we like to try to make our clients the heroes of the story, right? And and they like it too, usually. So it's like, that's an opportunity for the CHRO to be a hero within their own organization, within their own ranks. And and um, so, you know, we're that's a focus area. The other focus area though is um, while you're figuring out how to become a role model in AI adoption, everyone else in your organization is experimenting too. And there are risks and issues that need to be managed around the use of AI. And I think HR actually has an opportunity to play that role across the enterprise of how do you uh, safely 
um, adopt AI and how do you manage the transition we talked about earlier um, as it starts to impact jobs, impact organizations, impact teams. Um, so we talk a lot about like this idea of work re-architected, which is, you know, let's say someone in supply chain is introducing robotics into your warehouse and it's now starting to do work that people used to do. You know, there's a, there's a knock-on effect there for the people that used to work in that facility that needs to be addressed. And I think HR is in a good position to help address that. It's a bit change management, but it's more than that. It's also, you know, your, your job has changed. You no longer have to do this and you now have the opportunity to do this, right? Um, but we're not always thoughtful about that. We kind of throw technology into this, the mix, into the situation and expect everything else to sort, it, sort its way out. So um, I think that's a big part of it as well. It's just managing the transition. I think HR can play a lead role in that. And then again, the, the trustworthy, ethical, uh, responsible, maybe is the best word, adoption of AI in different parts of your organization so that it doesn't have a negative impact on your workforce or your customers. Um, so it's a new capability for HR to possibly develop um, alongside their partners in IT and other areas. Uh, yeah, I, I have this prediction, you know, uh, with fast adoption and quick disruption as we're seeing, again, you know, Google, um, I I believe, and I don't know if it's a year from now or, you know, two years from now or six months from now, but the pocket stick, you know, we're going to see these adopters, we're going to see these examples, and then there's going to be a lot of companies scrambling to find those people, as you said, like this is a people problem, not a technology problem. So everyone's going to realize the technology is there. And, and so that's not the scarcity. And they're going to try to find the people who know what they're doing here. And they're obviously going to come to, you know, the organizations like yours, uh, you know, to, to speed that up, right? How, how will you guys handle, I mean, you know, again, you know, it's not quite, not quite there. And, you know, now you can scoop them up, but, um, but in short order, you know, how, how, how do you think orgs like yours will handle this like crazy demand? Um, yeah. Yeah. It's, it, I mean, it's interesting because we've, we've dealt with this problem for years and different cycles, right? Every time something new comes along, something old tends to go away. Right. And if you're really good at reskilling and redeploying people that are, you know, that have, you know, skills that are no longer in demand and you can sort of get them into a place where they can help in growing areas. Um, that's one of the things that I think Deloitte does pretty well. There's always room for improvement, but that I think a lot of our clients don't do that well, right? Um, you know, we're in the business of people inherently, right? Like we make money off of selling people to our clients that have an expertise or a skill set. So there's no way that we can operate without that kind of reskilling, redeployment capability. But a lot of our other, or a lot of our clients don't need that as much, right? I mean, they may still be in a, a business where they rely heavily on skills. I think they're starting to realize that more and more, uh, but they haven't had the same, um, it hasn't been as direct of a connection to the heart of the business. And it's becoming more of a direct connection now. So I think a lot of organizations are focused on this concept of moving toward more of a skill-based way of, of thinking about and managing their workforce. And that will uh, be a step toward, I think, having that agility, um, Rob, that you're describing of like something new comes along and now I'm scrambling to find the talent that can help me keep pace 
um, with with the hockey stick effect, and they're nowhere to be found. So if you can't find them, you've got to you know search to alternative ways to to create that or fill that gap. So it could be finding a partner like Deloitte. It could be you know developing a new internal capability. It could be looking to international markets that maybe are um, under, under tapped. Um, there's a lot of different levers that you can pull, but it, it's, it's absolutely going to become a human problem, uh, or continue to be a human problem as, as the uptick happens and, and we start to see scale. Yeah. At least the barrier of, uh, convincing people to face plant will be gone. Yeah. They'll be lining up to do it. And now, now we have a mattress that you can <laughs> face forward old, on. Old problems gone, new problems emerge. Yeah, that's what that's that's why we've been in business since 1845. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I guess I guess it's just staying ahead of them. You know, you don't have to be at the at the destination. You just gotta, you know, be able to lead them, you know, uh, in a direction. So, yeah, right. that's. Well, it seems like HR could could play an integral role in in really making sure that, as you were describing earlier, Greg, like AI gets deployed in the right way and that mm-hmm. people aren't short-sighted. People are thinking through um, the solutions. Yeah. yeah, yeah, because, I, you know, I think eight, that's the kind of thing that HR departments tend to be attuned to. Am, am I right? Like, I, I think... Yeah. I think the, the, the big challenge there is going to be getting invited to the party. So it's twofold. It's getting invited to the party, but also having the actual capability to, to show up once you're there. Um, because I, I think, you know, as we move out of this experimentation phase into this mass adoption phase, scaling phase, um, it's going to be hard to keep track of all the little use cases and microservices and different things. Um, and when you look at them individually, case by case, the impact may not seem that big. But as this is happening everywhere across your organization, there's a cumulative effect that's starting to build up. And it's it's sort of finding the right balance between being involved in every individual use case and the adoption of every you know individual solution, while also keeping an eye toward like what's happening at the macro level that's that the cumulative effect of all this adoption that's going to have the bigger impact right so you're eventually going to get to a place where you know machines are integrated into the way your business runs and pretty much every function every department every business line and if you haven't managed the the people side of the transition along the way you're going to end up with this um this gap between what people are doing in the workplace and what machines are doing in the workplace. And it's going to be really hard to reconcile if you don't kind of figure it out along the way. You can't wait till you get to the end. You know, we know there is no end, but kind of the proverbial end. You can't wait till you get to the proverbial end and look back and be like, oh, well, what are we going to do with all these people? Um, that's that's going to be a, that's going to be, you know, unnecessary pain that we could avoid by building it into the strategy and the approach now. And you mentioned, oh, go ahead, Rob. Uh, no, I was just going to say, it's, I think there's also a, a really high likelihood that, you know, things like generative AI that, you know, we're going to see a lot of these, right? You know, I, I always say open AI, convince Microsoft to give them a billion dollars to see if there was enough data on the <laughs> internet to train a model to be useful. Mm-hmm. Um that I would thing, have loved to have been a fly on the wall yeah, in those meetings, by but, the way. I yeah, can only imagine. You pull that off. And, yeah. and it turns out there is, you know? And so the, the next model, Lambda, all these other, uh, you know, sort of followers on, yeah, Amazon's going to have to do something, IBM's going to have to answer. 
it's not as risky for them, right? They now know there's enough internet right. uh, data to make these useful. And so, you know, freeing up that capital isn't going to be nearly as difficult as the first one. So we're going to see a lot of these, these models popping out on there uh, uh, all around us, right? That, that will, you know, just, just kind of make this more available, almost commoditize it in a way. Um, I was going to use the word. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's, it's a, it's a race to the bottom. Right. And, and the question in my mind is going to be, you know, what's the reward for earlier, early adopters? Um, uh, obviously you get the advantage of being there first and, and getting the brand recognition and the market share that your competitors are going to start to erode into. But I'm talking more on the like uh, organization side, customer side of things. Right. So, you know, the question, and I'll, I'll ask you, Rob, maybe your thoughts is, is what's the advantage to an organization right now to adopt this before it's commoditized, right? Um, and, and be a part of that uh, early adoption um, part of the cycle, I guess. Yeah, yeah. I think it comes back to what you said. If you're investing in the humans in your company and their ability to learn this, and you're acknowledging that when you need it, those people won't be gettable, you know? Yeah. And so in a way you got to, it's not about the machines. It's about, you know, getting that organizational muscle in place as quickly as possible. So that, so that when, when this is a must do, when this is a do or die situation, you, you know, you're not scrambling. Yeah. You're not scrambling for resources that don't exist. Um, cause I mean, it takes a lot to, to put your head in this. Yeah. I don't know how long you, we've been talking for a while. Um, you know, with you guys on this, you've been deep in, into it for, I don't know how long and four years, maybe. Yeah. And uh, you know, how many people out there can say that? <laughs> like, yeah. Not yeah. enough. Not enough. That's for sure. Yeah. Yeah. No. I, and people are going to think we scripted that we really didn't, but yeah, that's like, that's exactly <laughs> what I would have said to the answer is it's, 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 you know, you either act fast now and you have the luxury of being ahead of the curve um, and you'll still have challenges, right? It's, but they're different problems than if you wait and try to catch up later. Um, and I think we've seen this play out with other, you know, cycles and other technology innovations, right? It's the, it's the Netflix blockbuster thing, right? Like, you know, blockbuster got into streaming toward the end, but it was too late at that point, right? You missed out on the content, you missed out on the talent. Um, so you know, I think there's all kinds of other examples we could point to, but uh, it's the same concept here, right? It's it's get ahead of it, act now, or you know, run the risk of of becoming obsolete without it if if you can't catch up later. Yeah, yeah, you're. Well, and how how big a risk do you think uh, this technology is to big companies? Because I mean, we've seen like uh, we reference Lemonade, the insurance company, a lot mm. in the book, because they're a tech first company. That I think the way they say it is they're tech first. They happen to sell insurance. Um, across industries that there's so much opportunity now for smart tech first companies to come in and, you know, kind of take over um, as these lumbering existing (laughs) giants try and acclimate. Like, is that, is that something that's in the minds, in the minds of enterprise right now? Do you think? Uh, I think so. And this is, that's the ideal of digital transformation. So it's much bigger than just, you know, hyper automation and conversational AI. It's really, how do I become a technology first organization? Um, and we've been working with the, the big dinosaurs, if you will, for a while to try to get there. Um, the one thing that I would say to just sort of balance that out a little bit is to that, you know, not to underestimate 
what those big dinosaurs do really well, right? Um, that some of the, the new entrants um, have trouble figuring out later on. And I think we've seen this play out over and over again too. It's, it's um, how, to, how to operate a successful publicly traded company, um, how to have the right operate, operational governance and metrics. So all these things that cause them to you know, uh, move slower from an outside in perspective are also potential sources of value, right? Um, and, and advantages when you think about, um, you know, the muscles, I'll use your word, Rob, that these newer entrants are going to have to grow, even though they're led tech first, they still have to figure those things out too. So it's, you know, every organization is dealing with a different set of problems and they're always trying to close gaps um, to help them get where they, from where they are to where they want to be. The gaps are just different. Um, so, you know, the big older companies are absolutely on that digital transformation journey. There's definitely things that we could be doing to accelerate that. Um, some of them are doing it better than others. Um, but on the, on the flip side, right, the, the newer entrants to the market that are tech first, they have, they're on their own journey, right? And a lot of them are going to look for IPOs and different things in the future. And um, just having really good technology and technology at your core by itself is, is not going to help them get where they want to be. So every I think every organization's on a journey. The journey just looks a little bit different based on where you're at and where you're trying to go. That's an excellent point. Well, and that digital transformation, um, I mean, we were talking briefly about experience design earlier. Mm-hmm. I mean, it kind of it kind of started 10 years ago or more with, with experience design, mm-hmm. right? And like kind of the same conversations, like we need UX, what the hell is UX? Mm-hmm. Um, and then the people who figured out what it is are either too scared to move or they, you know, go all in and fall on their faces yep. and are looking better for it now. Yeah. The, the new one's product, right? I feel like we went from UX specialist to now product specialist, which I really, the best I can define it is we took a bunch of other disciplines and we tried to throw them all together, together into this new multidisciplinary capability. And I see a huge gap um, with a lot of organizations where they'll define this role but there's no people that can actually do all those things. They can't fill that role. Um, and they're you know moving people into it that have like, let's say one or more of those disciplines in their background, like project management, UX, you know, whatever. Um, and, and, and just hoping that they can figure out the rest. Right. So we're actually doing a lot of work right now with companies trying to help them uh, embed their, a, a product um, mentality and, and capability and an approach and actually close the, the skill gap to get there. Right. Um, Cause you can't just create a job and put a person in that role and expect that they're going to be able to, to do all these different things. It just doesn't work that way. Yeah. The, the ever recurring hunt for the unicorn. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and we have the pendulum swings too, between like highly specialized people versus you know, generalist, multidisciplinary can do it all, and it'll keep swinging kind of back and forth. I think. Yeah, and it was interesting too because your your digital doppelganger report that just that came out, uh, it came out kind of before ChatGPT, as <laughs> yes. did our like as did our book, yep. <laughs> like um, right before. But <laughs> yeah. yeah, but the ideal of a digital doppelganger dovetails so wonderfully with ChatGPT in a way. I mean, um, I think people are now seeing how that might look in their lives just from having chat GPT write emails for them. Mm-hmm. I think their minds are starting to churn like, Oh, you know, technology could do all sorts of things for me. So while companies are certainly wise, probably to look at digital twin organizations and digital twins for workers, 
Are, do you think they're thinking about the fact that consumers are also probably on that path towards establishing their own digital twins and that at some point it's going to be like digital twins talking to digital twins? There's going to be that barrier perhaps? Maybe. Um, I think in our personal lives, it's already started to look different, right? Um, because uh, we first got exposure to this through an assistant on our phone or a, a physical device that we have in our homes, right? The whole smart home concept. and the idea that you train that assistant based on your preferences, you can you know choose what music service you want to listen to. You can create um, what we would think of in our world as kind of like workflows or microservices to you know turn the lights on when you walk in or set the temperature at a certain time point in time. Like all of my lights are on a pattern, right? Um, like that's that's what I was thinking of when we started the digital doppelganger concept is the idea that that same level of personalization that I can create through an assistant in my home um, or on my you know mobile device, my smart device, I could have at work too, right? Like the technology is there. I just have to invest the same way I've trained and set up and configured all of my my smart home devices, I could I could do the same thing with the same type of technology at work um, and maybe even beyond, right? Um, and its ability to integrate with other technologies and work with other assistants, um, you know, like my, you know, my, my, my device can communicate with the assistant on my home speaker system and, and play music in my house. Like, so that's the imagination side of it that I have is like the same kind of idea of a smart home I want in a smart workplace. Yeah, um, and if my workplace is primarily from home and I'm doing all this on my you know, laptop or desktop or whatever, then that smart assistant is basically living in, in a digital workplace, right? And has to have the ability to work across all those applications and workflows and different things that I would normally have to deal with on my own. Now I can get an assistant to go and do to do it and execute on my behalf. Yeah. Yeah, I think the the challenge for a lot of people, especially if you're not looking at the tech, you know, like, you know, might be your wife or, or your mom or whatever that says, oh, great, a $1,000 light switch. Thanks a lot. That was... Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yep. <laughs> like, and, 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 but, like, understanding that what you've created is a baseline for automation. You, you know, you're not done. You know, you've educated yep. yourself through that. You've started thinking through, you know, how to think about this tech and that you've created an underlying automation platform to go way further than just light switches. Uh, and, right. But that, that is the challenge, right? Like, he's not wrong. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, the thousand dollar light switch, right? That's the, the cost of the early adopter, I guess it's because <laughs> um, it's a lot of, it's a lot cheaper now, but, and, and, and I didn't put together a business case around, you know, <laughs> right. how much time would I save by not having to worry about turning lights on and off. But that's, that's really what, that's the conversation we're having with clients, right? So when they talk about using conversational AI to, let's say, um, you know, manage a new hire through the onboarding experience, which is a multi-touch interaction. It can take place over the span of, you know, weeks and months to get through the full kind of experience. It's compliance-related activity. So it's in many cases a must-do, but it's also kind of on the value-added side, right? Like how quickly can I get this person productive in their new role? How uh, much of a relationship can I form between them and their peers and their network, help them create a network? How much of a bond can I create between them and, and their employer, the workplace, and create um, that engagement? So there's 
there's a lot of different components and, um, uh, you know, the value case or the business case behind automating that, it's not just about how, how, you know, fewer light switches do I have to flick, yeah, right? Yeah. Because this, this assistance in place, um, it's about creating an experience for, uh, um, a new hire that would be almost impossible to replicate, uh, with humans, right? Because right. you can't, you can't, Better than you human. know, the business, yeah, you almost look at the reverse business case, like, you know, a design your ideal onboarding experience and then go figure out how much it would cost to have humans provide that right. level of concierge service. And it would be astronomical. No one would ever you know, go for that, right? It's just not practical. But then if you come behind it and say, well, what if I could offer you an assistant that could do it for X number of dollars? Now, all of a sudden you're kind of flipping. It's not about, it's, it's comparing and contrasting two different approaches right. versus, you know, trying to create an ROI driven business case, which, you know, there's nothing wrong with that. And obviously we live in a world where we have to be careful with resources and, uh-huh. and uh, we have to be financially um, responsible, but, but uh, we've kind of tried to get out of the hard dollars and cents of a business case and talk more about the art of the possible and why this is a good investment, even if you can't, you know, clearly show right. that it's you're going to recover the dollar dollar investment through time savings, right? That 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 equations, um, you know, doesn't work in every situation. Yeah, you said you said earlier cognitive load, and I think it's pretty relevant here. It's, uh, it's a, in terms of thinking about ROI. Um, I read an article. I think it, I, I think it was almost common knowledge at this point, but like Barack Obama, you know, gray suit, blue suit, and 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 the whole point was to just he had to make so many decisions. Simplify. Yeah, simplify in a day. So he wanted to save his cognitive load, right? Because he's like thinking, you know, I, there's only so much, so many decisions I can make in a day. I don't want to waste it on on which suit to wear. And so when we think about machines doing some of those mundane tasks, and and we measure the value of those tasks, we're not measuring the 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 freed cognitive load right for your employees yeah. and then what they do with that creative thinking right it's 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 not the the choice of and the and the cost of the choice of you know the, the what to wear right it, it's where did where did barack obama then spend his time what decision did he make better that day um and then what was the roi of that decision uh, right. super hard to track but he did it right. He did it at the highest level. So, so I think it's it's fair to say that that the rewards are there, even if you can't measure them. And maybe we get a little too caught up on what we can measure. I, I think I think that's absolutely the case, and it goes back to what we were talking about earlier of this productivity focus and short-term incentive focus. Like we're just not good at sort of breaking down those norms and being like, does it even make sense to take our old way of thinking about? technology investment and hard dollar business cases and ROIs and apply it to this new type of technology that can do new things. I, I, it's going to take some time for us to get through that whole shift because it touches so many parts of an organization, so many different parts of the business that have to kind of come together and agree like, or the world just, you know, moves into a big paradigm shift, but it, for everyone to come together and say, yep, you know what, we need to think about this differently and do this differently. Um, that's going to take some time, but I'm, I'm optimistic in, you know, I'll do a quick plug for Deloitte's uh, uh, 2023 Human Capital Trends Report. Um, it's our, you know, 
one of our biggest pieces of eminence that we put out every year, but there's a chapter in there that's all about powering human impact with technology. And one of the biggest points that we try to make is exactly what you just described, that if all you're thinking about is uh, technology investment from an ROI and a headcount efficiency, productivity efficiency perspective, you are you are going to significantly limit yourself in this next wave of of technology adoption. Yeah, it's like an over focus on what you can measure, and uh, yeah, and you go well, well that you know that leads to bringing your founders back at Google, right? <laughs> yeah, it's, exactly right. Uh, you got to try something new. Yeah, like did OpenAI know that when they got into this, they were going to eventually sell that GPT at Twenty dollars I had, no way, right? Yeah, I, I, like I said, I wish I could have been a part of those conversations. And I have to, I have to say quickly, I, I know exactly what you're talking about with the Obama reference. And I, I was really proud of myself because I used to travel every week for client work. Was on the road Monday through Thursday, and about ten, maybe twelve years ago, I realized how cognitively taxing packing my suitcase every week was on Sunday nights. And I'm like, you know, you don't want to be thinking about that on Sunday nights. So I did the exact same thing. I completely simplified my wardrobe and basically had like four suitcase is worth of clothing. And so it became this thing that I didn't even have to think about. Like it just was Monday morning, 5 a.m. heading to the airport. And I would just grab a chunk of things and drop them in a suitcase and I was done. And I, I, I wish I could, I, I wish I could articulate the benefit or value of that in a way um, that would make sense to people. Cause it was an investment for me to do that. Um, but the relief that I felt not having to worry about this on Sunday nights and the uh, level of stress reduced um, okay. on Sundays and Mondays for me and the focus I could divert to my clients and to my work and to whatever else I had going on was not only not measurable, but probably invaluable to me. Um, so and and uh, I did it way before Obama, so that's yeah. pretty cool. <laughs> well, it's interesting too because, uh, uh, yeah, well, just like the the productivity model that we've been talking about, it almost seems to regard humans as machines, right? It's like here, do this repetitive task right. until your body and mind completely reject it, and you can't do it anymore, and then we'll give you, you know, your gold watch, and you can retire, and you can go watch the sunset. Yeah, but you did. it seems like you're not now, useful like, anymore. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, but now we we have an opportunity to let machines take that burden, and now people can can make better use of their time, which is what you're describing, Greg. Like, it's a scary using frontier. Smart implementation to free up your time is yeah. It it, it is scary. It's a, a it's a scary like frontier. Much time. What are we going to do with it? Yeah, uh, well, I, uh, we talked about it earlier. We always find a way, right? The barista will emerge, uh, <laughs> but but uh, the transition is the is the hard part, right? Um, yeah. When, when you look at a single machine and a single new job that may come out of it and a single use case, single application, it's easy to manage. But when you're dealing with this uh, across an enterprise, across an organization, and we, you know, we work with clients that have you know, hundreds of thousands, if not millions of employees, um, being able to even understand and get your head around the problem and what disruptions are happening is really hard. Um, we've, we've seen a lot of clients that have started to invest in like listening tools and sentiment analysis tools and things that use AI to get a better pulse on the workforce. Um, but it, it still feels reactive to me. Uh It's slightly more proactive because, you know, you're not waiting until somebody, you know, knocks on your door and says, you know, I'm, I don't like this change, but, um, it's still reactive in the sense that it's, we're picking up all that data after the change has already occurred. And then we're going out and trying to do something about it. 
um, for me, the better approach is, you know, we get tied in on the front end of here are technology investments we're making, here are AI use cases we're, we're experimenting with or deploying, and having a uh, human lens to it to identify what is the impact of this on the workforce, on the people who used to do this job, on the organization as a whole, and figuring out ways to kind of manage through that. And it can be, you know, the we talked about rescaling and redeploying. That's definitely a big, uh, big opportunity. Um, we talked about the the idea of incentivizing people um, to work in new ways and to to behave differently, right? Like breaking the mold of not thinking of myself from a productivity lens and not viewing my value from a productivity lens. That doesn't work if I'm the only one who makes that shift. I need everyone around me to be a part of that shift. It's a cultural shift. So there's a lot of work to be done, I think, to get there. Um, I'm not worried about our human uh, ingenuity in terms of creating that next job. What I'm worried about is the, and not worried, but what I think we'll need to focus on for, you know, for the next uh, couple of years is how do we minimize collateral damage, manage through the transition uh, and actually focus on the human side of this, not the technology side of this. Because if we don't, I don't think we're actually going to get the value from the technology investment, whether it's measurable or or not. Um, I think people have to come along in the journey. Yeah. It makes sense. It sort of seems like, you know, the companies who can get, their employees to embrace change uh, are the ones that will will thrive in this environment. Um, adoption of the technology is, is more of a methodology. It's making them familiar with it so they're less afraid of it and yep. and can start playing with it. But at the end of the day, it's still a human problem to get them to embrace that change and to, to start thinking of creative ways to apply it. Um, it also seems like uh, I agree with you, the internal first start, you know, start internal. Um, It seems, it it seems like there's an issue there siloed, as you pointed out, where, you know, it's it's almost like all business units should just throw in the pot, you know, so that HR can get these tools or, or who should this belong to really, you know, should should the head of marketing go get, you know, you know, uh, talk to, you know, talk to you guys about, getting the tool for their employees or is that, you know, you know, is that stepping on toes? Like how how would somebody who's like watching this going, well, I'm not HR. I like, how do I get these tools for my employees and start that way? Yeah. I have a feeling there's a lot of people from HR that are watching this and going, we're not doing any of this yet. And I don't know where to begin. So, um, the money, or maybe, they won't give it to me. Yeah. Right. Right. And I have zero budget. And if I did have any budget available, I've got a hundred other problems I have to solve for. Right. Right. It goes back to the must do versus nice to have. And I don't think people have quite put this in the category of must do yet. We're getting closer and closer to that, but, um, there's a couple of things. So I have seen clients start to solve for this structurally by creating a digital experience uh, function uh, that, you know, reports right up to the COO or the CEO. Yeah, Gartner is really pushing this right now. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. It's a, it's a trend. It's emerging, but we're actually seeing, we're seeing it in, in practice too. And uh, the, the one kind of challenge that I've seen with that, and I think we see this with any new function that emerges all the way up to the C-suite level, it's, it's getting your charter right, 
figuring out you know strategy roadmap linked to everyone else's strategy and roadmaps and then actually having the funding and capability yeah. to do something i think a lot of organizations feel like we'll create the role create the function and it's just going to sort of magically work itself Bad out tech fog. yeah yeah or 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 it's a coordination role it's like right. my job is to coordinate all these other functions to do the right thing from a digital experience right. perspective and that's a, i think a recipe yeah for, I won't say failure because some, no. somebody will figure it out, but it's a recipe for for challenge. Yeah, for it's sure. the whole I bought the gym membership and I bought the book on dieting and exercise. I'm not Why going to I the gym. I can't figure it out. I did all the right things. Um, so so that's an emerging trend, the kind of structural creation of this new role, this new focus. Um, but I think where that's not the case what I've seen HR do well when they really kind of want to take this on is they make it, they're vocal about it. They make yeah. it their strategy. They start to prioritize things differently, right? So I have a client that has uh, anchored their HR strategy around only four things. Digital yeah. experience is one of those four things. And when they go into their um, you know, budget planning, funding cycle every year, if the investment they're making doesn't support an improvement in digital experience, then it falls below the line, right? It's uh -huh. sort of putting your money where your mouth is a right, little bit, right. right? But you start by you start by saying, this is what we're going to do, uh, being really intentional about it, making it the priority. But then it you, know, you actually have to follow through on that. So when you're faced with, with a tough choice of I can use dollars to make this easier for employees or I can fix this you know, plumbing issue that right. creates a lot of work for my HR team. Yeah. You, you got to make sure, you, you know, you have to have the incentive there to, to do the digital experience investment, even though to all of our points earlier, it may not have a quantifiable measurable return. Whereas if I fix the plumbing issue and I could get my HR team out of, you know, all this like firefighting data fixing, you know, I could write a hard dollar business case against that. Right. Right. Like it's actually eliminating manual work within a concentrated team. So um, you get, it, it's we're starting to see those little micro shifts and breaking the mold of let's do things because it's strategically the right thing to do based on where we want to go okay. versus the thing that's going to carve out savings or create efficiencies in the right. short term. One of the things I see is uh, companies kind of wanting to get a small win under their belt. Like, mm -hmm. let's get a small win kind of, and then, you know, maybe that'll convince people and then we'll free up more budget and get another bigger win. And, um, and it sounds logical, you know, on the face of it. Uh, but then I, I sort of ask, you know, being the scientist I am, I'm always like, great. So you get a small win and it fails. Then what? No AI, you know, you're, that's yeah. it. I, that wasn't for us. So you kind of yeah. ask yourself, are you really almost, um, you know, going slow now on purpose and, and and dooming your success by thinking you're mitigating um, the risk by you looking for these small wins and then building upon them. Right. What's your thoughts there? I, yeah, I mean, I'm I'm a big fan of the scientific approach. I'm not a scientist by trade like you are, but um, uh, I, I think it comes in handy in the business world more often than not, which is. Uh, instead of thinking about it as I'm going to experiment for the sake of experimenting, we talked about that earlier too. No, no. I'm going to experiment with a hypothesis in mind. 
And my, you know, my goal is to, to, this is actually part of our human capital trends report as well. This idea that I, people need to think more like researchers, right? I'm trying to solve a problem. And the way that I'm going to solve a problem, maybe you choose to use the scientific method is I'm going to create a hypothesis and I'm going to test that hypothesis. And if you test the hypothesis and it turns out to not be true, a good scientist or researcher doesn't just quit there. They go, well, maybe my hypothesis was wrong. Or right. maybe I tested it the wrong way, but you don't. The, the journey doesn't end there. You you change your hypothesis and you test again. Um, but usually, you know, that only works if you're anchored to solving a problem. And the good news is there's no shortage of problems out there. I think the the researcher though, the researcher mentality says I'm going to hone in on a very specific problem. I'm going to define what uh, what solving that problem means. Right. Um, I'm going to talk about how I would measure to ensure that problem's been solved, not over measuring, but like it could be just that workers feel more productive, right? Um, You know, it doesn't have to be a uh, a hard dollar type of of measurement. Um, And then I'm gonna build these hypotheses that say, if I do this, this, and this, you know, multi-factored experimentation. If I do this, this, and this, then these things will become true. Yeah. Um, and then you experiment. And sometimes you're right and you know you're going down the right path. Sometimes you're wrong and you know you need to make an adjustment. But I think that's the mentality we need, we need to have. It's, yeah. it's not, you know, experiment, fail, and quit. Right. It's experiment, adjust, and experiment again, you know? Yeah, and almost seems like this has to come at the board level, you know, where they just, you know, they, you got to spend X amount of your budget on exploring this stuff uh, and almost pushing an organization toward, you know, uh, thinking of it as like, you know, sort of that team, you know, where to deploy this capital, what projects to try, and then reporting back, right? you know, what are you getting for this versus the bottom up where the team has to justify to the board why and what the outcome will be and, and what the ROI is. It, it, it feels like once that shift happens, like, you know, like we're seeing at Google and stuff, then we'll start to see that, you know, that taking away that fear of failure that is required yeah. in experimentation. You can't, you know, you, you can't mix two chemicals together and say, oh, crap, it didn't cure cancer. We're, you know, and then, right. Let's and then stop throw trying a pity party, right? <laughs> yeah. No, that's it's, that's exactly it. And it, it sort of goes back to what I thought I referenced a client um, that I thought they did really well, right? So CHRO saw the problem, saw the opportunity. The digital experience wasn't great. Said, I'm going to be intentional about this. And then, you know, as they take their strategy up to the C- C-suite, the rest of the C-suite, the board, and they say, we are going to address digital experience. Um, it's a multi-year plan. Um, but I think it gives executives permission, um, with or without, you know, board, the board has to sign off on the strategy, right? But right. Um, when you get down to the actual execution of the strategy, I think it gives people more permission or flexibility to make investments that they otherwise couldn't, uh-huh. right? Because it's anchored to a strategy that's bold and innovative and trying to move the organization in a new direction. So if you have an HR strategy today that is, I'm going to implement this software, um, or I'm going to focus on reducing retention, you know, reducing turnover this year. Um, those things are important. They might be helpful, but I think you're kind of anchoring to the wrong things. You want to anchor to something that's more 
outcome driven um, that you can then use as a way to make decisions and investments um, along the way. Right. And on the digital transformation idea is interesting too, because an organization by virtue of going through this process of, of accepting failure as a first step and all that, they're going to come out the other side transformed. They're not going to be the same organization. And, yeah. and that, that could probably run pretty deep um, depending on how far they take this journey. Yeah. yeah, we 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 often lose sight of that, right? Like how much we change just by going through a transformation and and the the uncaptured value behind that, right? Um, just going through a digital transformation, people learn new things. They embrace agile in a way that you know you, you can't embrace just by reading the the, the playbook, right? Um, uh-huh. You actually live it and breathe it, and it becomes sort of part of your your DNA as a as a as a professional. Um, so I, I think it's a really interesting point and, and we don't always really talk about that kind of ancillary benefit of trying and experimenting and adjusting and experimenting again and, and the effect that can have on individuals that when added up can, can really help to drive culture shift. And we talked about a little bit earlier, this, this idea of the big traditional dinosaur enterprise companies, they all want to become more agile. That's, that was a universal trend um, a couple of years ago, and I think they're all still on that journey, moving at different speeds. But we see it all the time where someone will say, yeah, we're agile because we, we trained everybody in our IT department on this agile program. Okay. And then you go look at how they're actually executing projects, and it's all traditional waterfall. And <laughs> there's yeah. no actual appetite or forgiveness for experimentation and failure. Um, it's all, it's all kind of talk, no walk. Um, and, and the one thing I worry about with sort of the economic cycle and and inflation and kind of looking at a potential global recession, at least some headwinds, right. Is organizations that have been investing in this agile journey are very quick to be like, all right, scrap it. We got to save money. Right. And it goes back to that short term incentive problem. Um, and you know, we'll get on the other side of this as we always do, and they're going to have to start over again. And that's one of the biggest reasons that I think some of these bigger traditional enterprises haven't been able to navigate the change. Yeah. It's almost like the, the companies that thrive in a recession will have the uh, competitive advantage just based on timing, you know, yeah. and hundred percent. And that's, uh, that'll be interesting as we look in the rearview mirror at, you know, how much the timing mattered in, a, in all of this. Yeah. Um, yeah. And well, there's like a human element too. Uh, like, you know, for, for people on an individual level, change registers as trauma, even if it's positive change. Like, yeah. The first part of it is, is trauma. And I think that's true for organizations as well. Yeah. And that's, yeah. That's something that most people aren't comfortable acknowledging about themselves. So we can't expect enterprise yeah. to be great at it either. Yeah. We do yeah, a lot of generating code. Um, with generative AI internally, sure. and and you'll hear a lot within our walls of like, uh, it's it's too. You have to be more agile than agile. Like agile is not agile enough for, <laughs> you know, one-time use code generation. Like right. I, I liken it to creating a spreadsheet. You know, like are we going to have a Scrum meeting? Are we going to create an epic? Like no, just build the spreadsheet. <laughs> like I could have been done by the time the right. meeting was over, right? And we're yep. seeing that code getting created for one-time use going so quick that it's too agile for agile. And that w- yeah. there's like before- Over agile. Yeah. yeah, before they've before they've even adopted agile, we realize that there needs to be a, a new 
you know, too agile for agile process. Well, and it's, it's a great example of where human nature kind of ruined agile, right? Because yeah. the, the, the original idea behind it was, you know, four basic principles and this new way of thinking. It's like, you know, reduce documentation, be okay with experimentation and failure. And, and we took that and we said, all right, well, let's build a bunch of big products around it and agile yeah. training and ceremonies and tools, <laughs> basically, right? <laughs> tools and all these different things. And then, you know, when organizations come around and they're like, well, we want to become agile, we sell them all these big bulky things or, you know, give them all these big bulky things that are actually maybe anti-agile. Right. And, the software and, is like how operate agile. So in order to change your process, now you got to change the software. <laughs> it's like a, yep. <laughs> you've lost it's in. a never ending cycle. Yeah. yeah. Never ending cycle. It's funny. Yeah. yeah. The more things change, the more they wow. stay the same. Uh, yeah, I mean, I feel, I feel like the good news here, though, is that, you know, AI obviously is inevitable, but we need more people. Oh, yeah. It's a, pe- it's a people problem. I, I go back to, and I have this conversation with clients all the time right now. It's it's not a gap between what what you want. And we do all these, like, design thinking journey maps. We, we talked about designing the ideal onboarding experience. And we try to do that separate from technology, right? Forget technology. Forget what vendors and products you already have like let's just you know abandon that for a moment let's talk about what people need when they need it how they want it um and and put that on paper and that becomes sort of your north star right that's what you want to try to achieve and then you work backwards to what technology can do and there's this moment where people inevitably realize that the technology they have uh today is never going to create the experience that they want their ideal experience but then you educate and you say, well, these are the types of tools that are available out there that you can bring in and help you close the gap, right? You may not get all the way there um, and you're not going to get all the way there in one big waterfall program. You're going to have to, you know, get there in an agile way, building and experimenting, failing and adjusting and experimenting again. Um, and 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 it the conversation just kind of falls there, right? Because that gap between the technology they're comfortable with and the experience they want to create, even if they know the technology is there to fill that gap, it becomes the problem we talked about earlier of, of humans not knowing how to apply it and architect it and close close the gap. Yeah. So I, I think it's entirely a human issue at this point. And it's our, it's our imagination. It's our ability to think differently, um, architect things that don't exist today. That's the type of stuff that we, we need to be promoting to, to close that gap. Yeah, you could almost say, you know, start the budgeting and, and, you know, this waterfall, you know, beginning at budgeting ends up transcending all the way down the pipe. The second it carries through. Yeah. yeah. The second you said we've allocated this many dollars for this project and the ROI is this and the outcome is this. Um, you, you've already boxed everybody in uh, to creating an estimate on how long it's going to take to do that thing. And and then a design because you can't estimate without a design that we're just stuck in. Um, yeah. So, yeah, makes sense. When we've talked about a productivity model kind of treating people like machines, but now we really are at a moment where we need people to be human. We need mm-hmm. the human abilities to help coach this uh, technology forward. Yeah, so, and, it, and it's not to say it's not to say that productivity isn't important and that outcomes aren't important. No. I think that's what gets lost in the messaging sometimes. We think about it as either or. This is about creating mm-hmm. a better balance between the two. Right, especially while we're in this transition period um, of AI adoption, 
it's, you know, especially helping leadership and stakeholders, uh, shareholders, like we're getting all the way to kind of the end, at least for publicly traded companies. It's, it's respecting the productivity needs and demands there while also creating capacity to think differently, do things differently. And I think we'll start to see the balance shift more and more over time, but just even creating the opening for us to, you know, 20% of our time should 30% of our time should be spent on this idea of human, human, uh, elements that we can bring to the workplace to make it a better workplace or to our customers to make it a better customer experience. Uh, most workers don't have that luxury, right? They're, they are task driven and productivity driven, and we've got to start to create that room for them to do things differently. Yeah. The optimist to me wants to say that, you know, if you ever look at a GPT written, you know, paragraph or, or story, it's, it's pretty generic, you know, it's, Usually, yeah, it passes, you know. Yep. It, but it, I, you know, I, I want to say that it's just going to up our game as as creative humans to say, you know, generic and and basic isn't going to work anymore. You know, no. you're going to have to really push the boundaries of your creativity. You're going to have to spend a little bit more time on it, thinking through how to how to come up with a new angle, and just regurgitating. You know, other people's words and mixing them up a little bit as GPT does, you know, that's all we were, a lot of us were doing and, and that's not going to cut it anymore. You're going to have to right. be more creative. It's going to push us to think more creatively and, and ideally give us the time to be more creative. So maybe it just makes us all better, you know? <laughs> so that reminds me of this uh, story that I heard about and, and I read an article on, but I may get some of the details wrong. Um, but there was an uh, artist who won an art competition using AI-generated art. And there was a lot of controversy yeah. from the other artists saying, like, you know, this is cheating or at a minimum should be in a separate competition. Uh, but then when you actually learned about what the artist did, he spent over 40 hours trying different inputs and massaging and manipulating what he was feeding to the AI-generative tool. And you start to wonder, well, how is that different, right? Like it's not a paintbrush, but there's still art involved. There's still humanity involved. It's just involved in the input side of the equation. It doesn't have to be involved in the throughput part. Um, so I think, I, you know, kind of to your point, Rob, I think that's a really interesting example. And I love how all this is playing out in the art world first, because we always thought that that was the place that was the most sacred that, and, yeah. and safe from <laughs> from AI. And it's it's all happening there. It's in music, yeah. it's in painting, it's in you know, all kinds of different forms of art, poetry, um, writing TV scripts and different things. Um, but uh, but I think it's going to be, that's, that's the elevation, that's the barista moment, right? Uh-huh. Of somebody realizing that I can make art in a different way using AI to augment my vision. Um, but what I'm, you know, arguing whether what it created, what you jointly created together is still art and worthy of being judged alongside art that was created in a traditional way. I think that's a great little microcosm example of what we're going to start to deal with in the workplace and just in general in society as, as this, this moves forward. Yeah. Yeah. Making money at art certainly is a, you know, is a question mark out there and how, and how that's going to change, but yeah. making art, you know, that's not going to change. We, you yeah. know, the the experience of making art has nothing to do with whether machines can do it or not. Um, you know, so if you like making art and you like the experience of making art, 
whether it's alone or with other people, you know, maybe we start focusing on that and, and not the outcome and how much money I could make off the art I created. Uh, and so, and maybe, maybe more of us, you know, our time are freed up to make art instead of, you know, stamping license plates or whatever it is we're doing. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Right. Yeah. It's, I, the, the one other thing I love about that story is it's, it's a great example of how AI is going to test current norms and structures, uh-huh. right? So we've always looked at art competitions and evaluating art the same, well, not always, but for a long time, right. we've looked at it the same way. And now it's going to force us to think differently. And I don't know exactly how we're going to respond, but a response is, is, is needed, right? Yeah. Uh, we need to, we need to, yeah. we need to make a change somewhere. And it's again, on the human side of the equation that that change is, is going to be uh, required. Yeah. Well, I yeah. think there's an irony here in that conversational AI, the best place for orgs or people to go is to start having conversations with people who are a little further down the curve than them. <laughs> That's probably where they need to start, right? Is 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 listening or or participating in 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 having conversations about this and and then where to begin. I, I think so, and and. Um, I think there's something we can do too to kind of meet them in the middle, and that's one of the things that, that I really liked about ChatGPT is how um, we made the technology so accessible, uh-huh. easy to use, um, real. We made it real, right? And I'm using a, a very broad we. I had nothing to do with OpenAI's yeah. <laughs> success with ChatGPT, but but you know I think all of us that are kind of in this movement, if you want to think of it that way, yeah have a responsibility to think of ways that we can kind of bring others along. Yeah. Um, and, and, and I think it's the tangible, real examples that people can touch, feel, interact with that are going to get, that are going to get them there. Yeah. It's a bit, it's a big, it's a a really true, true statement that the, the large language model and the creation of that had happened long before chat GPT. We were using it and, and implementing it, you know, well over a year before, that DVD came out. That DVD is really just putting a festival face on it so that other people mm-hmm. could play with what only we could or very few of us could. And it it's really amazing to see what impact it has when when it's not the the creation or invention of the technology that is the moment. It's the moment that it becomes accessible mm-hmm. to the larger the group of people. That's the breakthrough moment. And yeah. and it usually comes, you know, almost incidentally as you know open as like oh well you know why don't we why don't we you know put a chat interface on this thing we already have (laughs) and throw it out there and see what happens and to your point it became the most successful app in the history of apps (laughs) like okay yeah broke the world a bit and it was never what it was never what they set out to do right? right like so that's the other funny part is it's experimenting and adjusting and yeah man you're gonna eventually reach one of those breakthroughs, right? Yeah. It's, well, hats it's kind off of the to, inevitability if you stick to it. Yeah. Hats off to Microsoft. I mean, they were brave, you know? That was yes. a lot of money. They they really took a risk there. Um does require some some bold uh yeah. bold thinkers and some bold action yeah. for sure. Yeah. Yeah, that could be a good example though for for companies moving forward. That was somewhat fearless decision. Yeah. So. yeah. Um yeah, I feel like that I, we could probably talk for another hour, but that's probably a good place <laughs> yeah, to leave it for yeah. now. Uh, I really like this idea that we've merged on, though, that at the root of conversational AI is is conversation, is 
is more people talking about it and more people talking to different people and figuring out ways to kind of bring everyone into the fold. So, yeah. Uh, Greg, really appreciate you taking the time. My pleasure. I, Rob, you as well. Yeah, yeah. I told you it yeah. would be the highlight of my day. I love I love talking <laughs> about this stuff and talking about it with other people that are that are really into it is 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 absolutely my joy. So yeah, yeah, right. What a treat! Thanks again for listening to Invisible Machines. Uh, we are produced in partnership with UX Magazine. Be sure to subscribe to UX Magazine wherever you get your podcasts to listen to new episodes. You can also watch us on the Invisible Machines YouTube channel. Uh, we'll be back next week with a, a discussion about uh, AI and UX. That's pretty interesting. Rob and I get into some new territory uh, talking about the roles, uh, the important roles that designers will play in uh, our future with technology. Mad props, as always, to the marketing team at OneReach.ai. And thank you to Michael Litvinov, our video editor. We will be back next week with more Invisible Machines.